0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies, where we look at new books about the Bible, from modern-day commentaries and art books to scholarly monographs and reference works. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I'm talking with Avia Kushner about her new book, The Grammar of God, A Journey into the Words and Worlds of the Bible, published in September 2015 by Spiegel and Grau an imprint of Random House. Kushner has worked as a travel columnist for the International Jerusalem Post, and her poems and essays have appeared in the Gettysburg Review, Harvard Review, Partisan Review, and the Wilson Quarterly. She teaches at Columbia College Chicago and is a contributing editor at a public space and a mentor for the National Yiddish Book Center. Kushner grew up in a traditional Jewish-Hebrew-speaking household in which the Bible was so integral to the fabric of family life that it was discussed and debated daily. She had never encountered an English translation of the text until enrolling in Marilyn Robinson's Bible course at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. There, in the silence of the cornfields, Kushner read the English version of what she knew by heart, and to her great surprise, she recognized very little of it. Krishner's interest in the differences between the ancient language and the modern one gradually became an obsession. She began, she began what became a 10-year project of reading different versions of the Hebrew Bible in English, and traveling the world in the footsteps of the great biblical translators. A fascinating look at language and the beliefs we hold most dear, the grammar of God is also a moving tale about leaving home and returning to it, both literally and through reading. The Grammar of God is a 2015 National Jewish Book Award finalist, he was also named one of the top ten religion stories of 2015 by Publishers Weekly, and one of the books that shaped Jewish literature in 2015 by the Jewish Book Council. In today's conversation, we talk about Kushner's early career as a journalist, her love of poetry and language and the challenge of reading the Bible in English translation and the profoundly human qualities of the Bible. Avia Kushner, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: I wonder if you might begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Sure. Um, I grew up in Muncie, New York. It's a small town about 25 miles from New York City. And uh, today it has a very large Hasidic population. Uh, But my parents were not Hasidic. We did speak Hebrew at home. My mother's Israeli and my father's American. And I think that having Hebrew as a first language really shaped my entire life. Uh, I went to Jewish school six days a week. I went to Yeshiva. And uh, then I continued uh, to high school in Manhattan, which in my neighborhood was extremely rare. Nobody did that. Nobody went to a at high school or at a high school in Manhattan. And then I continued uh, to college, uh, to Johns Hopkins. And I really planned to be a writer. You know, that was all I, all I wanted to do. I got very interested in poetry and very interested in short stories. And I did my absolute best uh, to find amazing poets and amazing fiction writers uh, to work with. And so um, I ended up studying with Mark Strand uh, the Pulitzer Prize winner in poetry. Wonderful poet was my first real teacher. And then I was lucky enough to work with um, Robert Pinsky and Derek Walcott and Rosanna Warren. Oh, wow. They're, all, they're just great, great poets. And I learned a lot about language and how it works from them.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So after at at the point you finished college, what did you think you were going to do?
1: You know, I thought I was just going to be a creative writer. I thought I would write poems. I thought I would write stories. I wasn't sure how I was going to support myself. And so I ended up getting a job on Wall Street, actually. And I wrote about finance uh, for
0: for years. The opposite of poetry.
1: The opposite. The opposite. But it does. A lot of the great human themes are there in finance. You know, there's hope. There's fear. There's greed. Ah. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Um, Yeah, and then at a certain point, um, I moved to Jerusalem, and I worked as a reporter in Jerusalem, and I learned a lot uh, there. And uh, then September 11th happened. Oh. life! You know, it just, I was actually on a plane going from Tel Aviv to Newark on September 11th. And, uh, you know, we were stranded in London. We were stopped. We couldn't continue to the United States. And I think after that, I sort of had this moment of, You know, do I really want to continue sort of working as a journalist during the day and writing my poems at night? Like it was just this watershed moment. And uh, I also couldn't fly back to Jerusalem. So I had someone else take over my stories. And at that point, I applied to graduate school. And uh, I ended up uh, in a very unexpected turn of events. September 11th sent me to Iowa.
0: Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) Not somewhere you expected to live.
1: Not at all. Not at all.
0: Well, you've lived in several different parts of the world as, yeah. as well as around the country, and you've settled in Chicago. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the w- what it was like living in Jerusalem and how that's affected your perspective? Um, you said Tel Aviv.
1: Sure. Well, I lived in Jerusalem as a reporter, and I've spent uh-huh. a lot of time in Tel Aviv more recently doing oh. translation, but that's a separate issue. Okay. So I'll tell you about Jerusalem. So – Jerusalem was a city I had heard a lot about all my life. It was where my parents met. It was where my mother uh, went to college. It was where a lot of the great scholars I had been reading all my life were based. Uh-huh. Uh, but when I got to Jerusalem, what I observed was sort of an extreme version of, of the town I grew up in. The town I grew up in was very religious, but um, this, it didn't have a state and an army behind it. In, in Jerusalem, it was a time of great violence and it was the second intifada. People were being blown up every day, and I started to realize it was a very, very frightening time. But I realized that people had extreme reactions to religious statements, and that they took individual lines in religious texts—you know, whether it was the Bible or the Quran—they were a matter of life and death. And that was something I think I first started to feel um, in Jerusalem: that how you read could really determine. How you behaved toward other people and whether you really felt they deserved to live or die—that was a new feeling for me to understand that. Um, where I grew up, it was you know a matter of faith. People people studied all day long, but it had no connection to political reality. In Jerusalem, it was different. Uh, the Bible and politics were very, very, very close, and that was, I think, one of the first times I really felt that.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, and so how much, uh, you mentioned being on a plane. I mean, uh, at, when September, September 11th was happening, how much did that, uh, obviously it changed the trajectory of your career because you couldn't return. Um, but how, how did that, um, that, that even that connection of just being in the air, how did that, um, uh, Ground your sense of wanting to be in the United States versus abroad? Because at some point you considered being a travel writer or did some travel writing?
1: Yeah, I was actually writing a travel column for the International Jerusalem Post for several years, and I was writing it during, this, the, during the Intifada, during this time of great violence. It was a very strange experience because, you know, there weren't that many tourists, but I was being sent to place after place and trying to write about uh, locations that were often often had thousands of years of resonance, mm. and uh, you know, and I, I, my job was to keep going no matter what else was happening. And a lot of times, even writing those travel pieces, it, it was quite dangerous. You know, I, I remember waiting at a bus stop and a truck full of men and with huge guns pointing at me. You know, it was it was a frightening time. It was not really a good time to be by yourself. Um, I remember on September 10th. Having um, at that time, there were three soldiers who had been kidnapped by Hezbollah, and their, the posters—they were sort of mountain-sized posters of their faces—were affixed to the mountain. And I was walking down the street. I was doing a travel piece on Matoula, which is on the on the Lebanon border. It's a town that was founded by the Baron de Rothschild, mm-hmm. and um, literally, Hezbollah fighters were pointing their guns as I walked you know, along the street. I was the only person on the street. And it was frightening. It was really just a very, very scary time. So I think that September 11th really just made me stop. I had no choice. But I think it also made me understand history in a way I never understood before. I think, I guess my the strongest example I can really give is I was stuck in, in London and you couldn't fly anywhere. And so every day I would go to cafes and just listen to what people were saying. And I distinctly remember sitting there and listening to British patrons. I had understood that Britain was our great ally. And the people were saying things like, we can't wait for America. Why don't Americans just get out there and use their credit cards and spend? And there was very little empathy. Actually, I heard no empathy for, for lives lost, you know. And I started to feel, for the first time I understood, my grandfather, who grew up in Germany, would always say there was nowhere to go, you know, there was nowhere to go. And I never understood that there was nowhere to go. But sitting there, day after day, listening to non-empathy from the country that I thought was our great, America's greatest ally, I, I realized actually that America was quite alone. And I realized that there weren't that many places you could go. You know, it was, it was a new feeling. I think as a travel writer, I felt that I could go anywhere. You know, that's how I felt. I felt like anywhere. Wow. I didn't feel that way after. I didn't feel that way after the attacks.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, um, I wonder if we might, uh, talk a little bit about your, um, your influences, both on your, your writing, but also your thinking like, uh, were there, you know, particular, um, uh, uh, in addition to maybe some poets, but also critics or other writers who did journalism the way that you wanted to practice it?
1: That's a great question. You know, I really never, even though I made a living as a journalist, I never really saw myself as a, I never saw myself as a career journalist. I Ah, never, that wasn't the plan. So I don't know that I really thought that way. Uh, But I was always reading I was always reading a lot of wonderful essays from the past. I'm a big fan of Natalia Ginsberg. She's an Italian uh, writer. Her book, The Little Virtues, is really beautiful. Um, I love Adam Zagajewski. He's a Polish poet. He writes beautiful prose, like Auden's prose. So I always read those. But I don't think I really saw myself as a journalist or placed myself in that, in that canon. It was just what I ended up doing to survive. And, um, and I found that it was really educational and wonderful. But I think I'm probably the only person who really didn't plan on something like that. I mean, my first day in Jerusalem, I just told people people, and days I had, you know, I had enough work for a couple of years. I, I think that was just more luck than anything else. But I definitely didn't plan. Um, I didn't plan it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, you, I mean, you've had quite a wide-ranging career to date, and. Um, so much of it comes into play uh, in your book, and one of the fa- things I found so remarkable about it was how your reading of the Bible was so tightly woven together with memoir. You know your fond recollections of conversations with your immediate family, as well as your difficult inquiry into your family's deeper past. And I wondered, you know, did you know that the book would be so personal or so animated by your own life stories when you started writing?
1: Yeah, it is a great question. I get asked this a lot. So this book started in Marilyn Robinson's Bible class at the University of Iowa in graduate school. And it was my first real encounter um, with the Christian Bible, the Christian translation of the Bible. I never, I only, I only read it in English my entire life, in Hebrew, I'm sorry, my whole life. It was the first time I ever, I ever really sat there and read the whole Bible in English. And I, I, was, I was just amazed. I, I was really shocked by it. And so um, Marilyn would, would look at me and she would just say, you know, why are you so surprised? And I would always say, I would have to teach you so much about Hebrew for you to understand. And so the book started with me. I, I, didn't, I didn't think I was doing a book. I would just sort of write letters to Marilyn about individual lines, in, in, in the Tanakh, in the complete Bible, the Torah, Nebim, So, And when I wrote those letters, I would always include how my mother spoke about it, you know, or how my grandfather understood this phrase. That part was there from the beginning. At the, um, and then those letters expanded into essays and then a thesis and then a book. But from the beginning, I would try, I was trying to give a window into how that verse was alive, because what I felt very much in, in the translation I initially saw and in the future translations, I felt that a lot of the liveliness of the Hebrew was reduced or removed altogether. And the way, it was just my first impulse was, let me show you how we talk about this. And I think that's that just grew into
0: a, a personal book. Can you give an example of maybe one of those um early conversations with your professor and uh, uh, I know you talk about the early chapters of Genesis quite a bit in the book um, as well as other places in the Bible. But what was a, maybe what's a specific instance that you can remember where uh, even your professor was illuminated by the fact that you were highlighting uh, a feature of the text that maybe wasn't obvious to her.
1: Yeah. I think we both learned a lot from our conversations um One thing I remember is looking at a nineteenth century Bible that Marilyn had in her office, and it had illustrations and it was a conversation we were having about Ishmael, okay Ishmael in Hebrew is described as Per Adam, which is a wild man, okay It just means you know I think we've all we've all known guys like that like a you know a wild kind of guy, but the translation I was looking had had wild ass of a man. And the Bible we looked at had a drawing of an animal. And I thought, I, I thought that was a tremendous departure. You know, I thought describing a human being as an animal, um, and, and I understand, you know, in I guess in English we have the expression of wild ass. We that's not, that's not what's going on. And so I think that was an early time where I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, um, looks like there's this long tradition of seeing Israel on animal like terms. And that 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 was shocking to me. That was shocking.
0: So is this when the Bible collecting began? Uh I there's a memorable passage in the book where you're saying that you had all these editions of the Bible in your the trunk of your car. And um so I I want is this the point at which the the obsession with trying to um to pull together a lot of these comparisons to understand uh, how Hebrew was making itself manifest in these English translations?
1: Yeah, the the Bible collecting definitely started in Iowa. It started from the first Bible I had was uh, the Oxford Annotated Bible, which is a widely respected, yeah. a scholarly edition. Um, but for me, it was, it was very weird to have this Bible. I used to carry it around in a brown paper bag. I was sort of embarrassed to be seen with the Christian Bible in the beginning. Uh, so the first thing that I did was people in the class kept mentioning the King James, and I actually had never read the King James. And uh, it's mm-hmm. So the first, the first one that I got was, uh, was the King James. And then I just became very suspicious Um, when I started looking at these translations, I thought, I want to see more. And, um, you know, I realized just looking at the King James and the Oxford annotated, I could see the difference there. Uh, So I borrowed a few from the Hillel House. It's the Jewish um, student's house at the University of Iowa. Uh, So those were some of the first that I had, and I put them in the trunk of my car. And then my neighbor in Iowa City uh, is an evangelical pastor, and he came over with a stack of uh, Bibles. And so I started with those. And then um, I started driving around small towns in Iowa and buying old Bibles in uh, thrift shops. And uh, yeah, and so I had, I had them in the trunk of the car. And I would sit in a coffee shop and I would just compare, you know, 10 or 12. And I could completely see the differences between them. I could see that, you know, a Bible from the 1840s and a Bible from the 1920s were not the same. And I I could see the evangelical understanding of the Bible. And I could see um, the Jewish community's understanding and how the Jewish community's understanding had changed or what the Jewish community was more comfortable sharing over time. And, yeah, and I got obsessed. So that's how that's how that started. yeah. And I recommend to everyone, everyone should look at more than one translation, everyone, no matter what you believe, it's so interesting.
0: Yes, yes. and yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll we'll talk more about that for sure. Um, I have to tell you that I had uh, two predominant reactions to your to your book. One was uh, utter grief over not knowing biblical Hebrew, um which uh. if, which at <laughs> forty seven seems beyond my capacity. Um, and the other was a deep,
1: it's never too late.
0: It's never too late. Well, uh, we'll get some book recommendations perhaps. Um, but the other was a deep desire to be a fly on the wall at one of your next family dinners. Um, and I think that this, uh, that both of these really get at the dual nature of your book. Um, but they never seem to seem to be intention. You know, they're, they're quite complementary. And it seems like a love of the Bible and language seems to extend quite naturally or seamlessly uh, from a love of family and vice versa. Do you experience it that way?
1: Very much, very much. I mean, uh, to me, the Bible was something we talk about, talk about at home. It was, it was, it's, it's dinner conversation. It's not necessarily this religious, political, moral know tower it's something that we that's part of the way we communicate part of the way we laugh with each other part of the way we um we live our, our lives you know so i that's why i think it was i think it was hard for me to get the balance right but i i it was impossible for me to write about hebrew to write about the language of the tanakh to write about why the Torah matters without writing about my family. They were just mm-hmm. so intertwined. Um, you know, the other day, uh, somebody asked me when, about my first experiences reading, reading the Bible, and I realized that that was actually not the right question because I had heard it before I read it. Yeah. And just as an example, uh, my mother used to bathe us to the Psalms. She used to sing the Psalms, you know, when we were babies. So it's like, how can you it's not a book. It's like your childhood song. That's what it is. And I felt, um, and there was a chapter in there about that. It was taken out, but I, I just felt that it's, it was so personal to me. And when I read some of the English, it just didn't feel that way. And I thought that was, there's, was, there's something about Hebrew that's very intimate. It's, it's very much, person-to-person, heart-to-heart. I thought it was really important to do my absolute best to get that across to an English reader.
0: And you do. <laughs> you do, definitely. Um, it's really what what has stayed with me since I finished reading it two months ago. So, um, oh. <laughs> you know, the uh, one thing that occurs to me is really the vast majority of English-speaking Christians don't know the original languages of the Bible. That is Hebrew, Koine, Greek, and a few short sections in Aramaic. Uh, for some uh, thirteen or fourteen hundred years, depending on how you calculate it, the, cal- the Catholic Church, the Bible was only known in Latin translation. Um, this seems very peculiar in comparison with other faiths. You know, Islam seems inextricable from the the Arabic of the Quran, and one might say the same thing for Judaism and the biblical Hebrew but it, that hasn't always been the case. Um, could you talk about how that came to be true over the past hundred years, but wasn't always so?
1: Yeah. You mean the, the history of Hebrew? Yes. 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 Okay. So first of all, you're very right that it's it's a strange thing to think about so many millions of people reading a holy text in translation. It's something I thought a lot about and something I really did not understand until I read the Bible in English. I, I was I, I was really... Uh, sort of astonished by the largeness of that fact and I was even more um, troubled by the fact that nobody really talks about it you know I thought why aren't we talking about the fact that these holy texts are translated for for so many Christians and just what does that mean what does it mean to have a translation at the center of your life so I found that amazing in terms of Hebrew Hebrew has a very interesting history Hebrew is the only ancient language that has really been revived, okay, as a spoken language. So, to be fair, scholars were always reading Hebrew for thousands of years. Okay, okay. Scholars were always reading Hebrew. And you can see that because, say, the commentaries are in Hebrew, you know, from the 10th century, from the 11th century. Yes,
0: right.
1: It's always been a scholarly, scholarly Hebrew language. Also, prayers have always been in Hebrew. So Hebrew was the language of prayer, the language of scholarship. Hebrew was not a spoken language for about 2,000 years. It just wasn't spoken. In the 1880s, a very interesting man, he was a journalist uh, by trade, and he decided that he was going to personally revive the Hebrew language and his way of doing it as a spoken language. And what he decided to do, it sounds a little wild, but it actually worked. When he had a child, a son, he decided that he was only going to speak to this son in Hebrew. You can imagine how popular this must have made him with his friends. You know, he, he spoke only Hebrew to that boy. And he wanted to have the first, the first native Hebrew speaker, you know, since more or less since the exile from uh, the Roman exile. So he starts that and then he does a Hebrew dictionary. His name is Eliezer van Yehuda. And by putting together a modern Hebrew dictionary, And by teaching his own son, his own children, only Hebrew, he started an incredible revival of the Hebrew language. And so the language we have today, where, you know, in Israel, I mean, there are six million Jews in Israel. Uh, This is incredible to have. There are eight million people in Israel, so say at least eight million Hebrew speakers, plus the speakers around the world. This is an incredible revival. We're really only talking about something 130 or so years old. So it's an amazing it would sort of be like if somebody decided to revive Latin to spoken. That, that's what happened to Hebrew. That yeah. In a
0: way. Well, it's, it seems to me that, uh, you know, one of the upshots of your book is that we should be spending more time learning the original languages. Right. Um, because uh, I, I know in my own collection, you know, the number of commentaries just keeps expanding as I realize really it's not sufficient to uh, read the text in isolation. Right. Um, do you have a recommendation for a preliminary, for a, a primary reader in Hebrew? <laughs> Are people asking you this?
1: No, I I would say that what that even if you know a little bit of Hebrew uh-huh. it can do so much with the Bible. So I'm holding up my hands now just to give you an example. I think even even learning the word for hands and the words for fingers can help you understand the Bible in a very big way. Just something so I think even if if um, readers take the time to learn the parts of the body in Hebrew, uh, uh-huh. they'll have a deeper understanding of the way the Bible is structured. So I would say, what what I think there's a big difference between knowing zero and knowing a little bit, and then a little and a lot, but even a little. Like a hand is a yad. You know, as soon as you understand yad, you understand that's the hand of God. You understand expressions like yad vashem you know, which is a figurative use it's sort of a monument and a name. But if you understand etzba, which is a finger, you'll understand the finger of God comes in, you know, and, and it comes in in the story of Exodus. So I would say even getting that child's understanding of, of body parts and what they're called can go a long, long way. And I would encourage readers who are interested in the Bible to just get elementary Hebrew down and see what a big difference it makes. See, what, see it's, it's, it's so illuminating.
0: Excellent um, th- throughout your book you um, you set up each chapter by actually putting in parallel a particular verse and uh, and that starts your um, the narrative in that chapter as a, a launching point. Um, can you talk about a specific uh, instance where um, each of those English translations really doesn't quite get at the original Hebrew and what you found and how you were able to tease out it in English.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So first let me backtrack a little bit and explain that those intro sections are actually quite controversial. Oh, yes. So in Jewish tradition, number one, um, if you have a, a page of the Bible in a book, if you have God's name in a book, you can't throw the book out. So the decision to put um, a page of the Hebrew Bible with the Hebrew commentaries in between each chapter, which is something I fought for, oh. uh, actually something that my home community really objected to, because as we all know, of course we would, we all would love to think that people save books forever, but you know we know people throw books out, um, they send them to Goodwill, you know they do all kinds of things with books, and that's a problem that's directly against Jewish tradition, but. I felt so so strongly that the Hebrew had been erased from the conversation that I I felt that it was worth the risk that somebody would take the book and throw it in the dumpster. You know, I felt that that was really, really important. So that's number one. The Hebrew being there is actually pretty is is, it was is not something that I took lightly. I thought about it. Um, Then you're right that then after that. I did a word-by-word translation, and that, too, is very controversial in the translation world. So let me explain why. Some Many translators know the language well enough that they just translate like this. You know, they just read and go like that. Other people have what's called a trot, which is what I prepared, a word-by-word thing, and they put it together. But I thought it was important for readers to understand that over the centuries, many translations of the Bible had been made that way. Many people who translated the Bible did not know Hebrew that well or know it at all. And so they relied on these word by word uh, things. But to answer your question, I really think that the opening lines of Genesis is where I think a classic moment where I really felt that none of the translations captured it all. I thought they tried. I thought they each had, um, uh, there were translations with merit, but the structure of Hebrew and English is so different at that point. The Hebrew is just so much more ambiguous than the English that I felt that all of the translations missed some of it. And that actually was that was the impetus to have six translations. I was like, you know what, one isn't enough. Let me show six, so that the English reader can get a sense of just how difficult Genesis one one and one two are. And I just felt that over and over and over again. You know, I would say read six versions of Ishmael instead of one and and you'll get a sense of what's happening.
0: So talk about one of those instances uh, that you highlight in the book, um, because that's a great place to um, to start.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, one one thing that I highlighted was Sarah's laughter, because I felt Sarah came across as much less um, spunky in English than she did in Hebrew in 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 hebrews sarah's this fascinating character her laughter has been a problem for thousands of years her um her direct challenge to god has been an issue for thousands of years and in many of the english translations i read it was just you know sarah laughed to herself done and i just was like no 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 it's not that easy it's not that neat and so i tried hard to make Sarah as messy in the English as she is in the Hebrew because she said she's a very unusual character she's the first person to laugh in the entire bible you know after 18 chapters she's the it's the first laugh but she also she also challenges god directly and that's something that we see more as the bible goes on but early on from from you know Abraham and Sarah level it's very unusual it's very interesting and i think it's difficult for a reader in english to understand that challenge without, because because Sarah's laughter is flattened, So it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make as much sense in, in English as it does in Hebrew. That's actually an interesting moment. Sarah's laughter was interesting because I felt some of the older translations from the 1500s and 1600s were more accurate than the newer ones. So that was a fascinating moment for me, too, to see that.
0: And did you, when you were talking about this with your uh, fellow students and yeah. your professor... What were some of the reactions that you would get to highlighting um, that uh, more subtle way or more layered way of kind of looking at the story? How would people respond?
1: Yeah, I think my fellow students were fascinated. You know, I had a lot of so the people in the class were all aspiring writers, all young writers. And it's Iowa. So the talent level was really, really high. We had great readers. I think people were really interested. They were always, always asking me for more information. And actually my classmates were a big push on how this became a book. They would keep saying, I want to know more. I want to know more. Please explain this to me. Please explain that to me. Um, I think that many of my classmates were used to reading only one Bible. That's how they grew up. Like they read just the text. They didn't read comments on it. And that was really shocking to me at first because I was so used to reading with nine or ten interpretations at once. And they, whatever it was that they believed, they they thought there was only one way. And the idea that there were multiple ways of reading the Bible, I think, was very moving and intriguing to a lot of my fellow writers in the class. I also want to just express gratitude. I was really, really fortunate in the early readers that I had. And they they helped throughout this process um, from my classmates. One of my classmates was the son of an evangelical minister, um, and he was an early reader for me. He read all of the first versions; was really really helpful and helped me understand what wasn't clear and what I needed to elaborate on. Um, another person, another friend of mine, who read throughout um, her father's a Seventh Day Adventist minister, so that was also very interesting to understand that point of view. And I had. Uh, yet another reader who uh, came from a deeply Catholic background and was able to suggest Catholic texts uh, throughout the reader, so they 're all writers who read for me uh, early on. Then I had um, a poet friend uh, he 's a really really talented poet, and he grew up steeped in the king james and that was also really helpful. You know he would also always give me the perspective of and I now realize there are a lot of a lot many such readers a reader who just absolutely believes that the King James is the most important text ever. And he would always give me that sense. So, so I just want to credit those, those readers.
0: Right. And some impute, you know, inspiration to those, uh, translations, right. That they were divinely inspired, uh, just like the original. Um, yeah. so, yeah. um, uh, I, I don't think we invest that much authority in in contemporary translation these days, but um I you know you you in your book you cite a number of the so called uh committee translations of the Bible. you already mentioned the new revised standard version um, uh and then the King james and or authorized version and the Jewish public case. Publication Society Translation. Um, I wonder if you might comment on what Frank Kermode called single-handed, non-institutional translations of the Bible. And I'm specifically thinking of Robert Alter and Everett Fox uh, in the Jewish tradition. And of course, there are others. Um, I ha- happen to be a huge fan of Robert Alter, um, uh, having started years ago with his David story, which I found um, very jarring in... Uh, disrupting a number of what I thought was so familiar about First and Second Samuel, but how do how do you it's it's it seems silly for me to praise an English translation to somebody who knows the original Hebrew of those books in the Bible. But how do they compare um, when you're when you're looking at um, the, these English translations? And do you have a favorite? Is there one that you uh, recur to from time to yeah. time?
1: No, that's a beautiful question. I will say that even though I think the Hebrew is the gold standard, there are some really great translations out there. You know, there are. It's not It's not that there are no decent translations out there. Um, I would say that the committee versus lone wolf translator thing is something I thought about a lot. And I think that anyone who teaches or anyone who has a corporate job and has served on a committee um, knows what committees are like, you know? And you can feel that. In some of these committee translations, you can feel that they went the path of least resistance or something that everyone sort of grudgingly agreed to. You know, you can you can feel that. I will also say that within the committee translations, I think that some it seems to me that some of these passages were the works of a lone the, the work of a lone person, it's not that every line was a committee. Uh, a famous example is in the Jewish publication society translation of the book of isaiah is the is the sole work of the great scholar H l Ginsburg. So the book of Isaiah sounds different than the rest of that translation, just as an example. Um, I think that some of the wilder, more inventive translation solutions do come from these lone translators. I think Everett Fox has a beautiful solution uh, for Tova in uh, the beginning of Genesis. He translates it as wild and waste. Beautiful uh, solution. Uh, Robert Alter will have a uh, God's breath hovering over the waters. A uh, God's breath is definitely, you know, an outfit. That's an individual choice, okay? God is not breathing in, I mean, just a little. He's not but it's a very interesting individual way of explaining what's happening. So absolutely, I would say that um, some of these individual translators come up with unique ways of reading that are that are very beautiful. I have tremendous respect for Alter, as you do. I think he's a great scholar. I also think that the footnotes... Um, that Robert Alter provides are a great window for the English reader. I felt that especially in the Psalms. I thought his footnotes on the Psalms translation were re- really gave the English reader a heads up into what was going on. Okay, I thought it was really helpful. Um, I think Everett Fox is very special because Everett Fox makes this incredible effort to honor the sound of the Hebrew. And that was something that hurt my heart reading many translations, I felt that they thought about everything except what the Hebrew sounded like. And Everett Fox, I think, um, does this tremendous, he, he makes a tremendous effort to recreate the sound of the Hebrew. So I absolutely uh, would recommend his translation for that. I think he, even though, I mean, you can hear it, tovavo wild and waste, they're not exact equivalents, but I think you can hear that he's trying to recreate the echo of that those two words. And in many distinguished translations, I felt that there was no attention to the sound of the Hebrew. So there's my vote for Everett Fox.
0: There you go. Actually. And his translation is fully set as, uh, at least of the Torah is fully set as verse. Yes. Um, and that's yes. something very distinctive about his translation.
1: Yes. you well, you'll see that also in, um, HL Ginsburg's Isaiah. Oh, you, know, you will see that. Like there are, there are people who do that. It is distinctive about his translation, but I will also say that I don't read German, but from what I understand from Everett Fox's introduction, he's following the Martin Buber approach. And that, I think, makes him distinctive among English translators.
0: Right. Well, we often think of poetry in the Bible as being... Uh, limited to the Psalms and particular passages throughout some of the historical books where poetry is quoted. And typically in a, in an edition, you'll see that offset um, as poetry. Um, but um, it also doesn't pick up on what you're talking about is that there are often these resonances within the line, even though it's prose, the resonances or the, the sounds that, that get duplicated um, and, uh, that's a very particular aspect of the Hebrew that you really need a guide to say. Well, actually, the word choice may have been influenced by these uh, internal rhythms. Um, so it's
1: absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Thank you so much for saying that because that was really what was going on inside the line, the the internal rhyme of the Hebrew, the the wordplay. The I thought of them as echoes. Was what one of the things that made me most upset with the English translations. You know, what's beautiful about the Bible in Hebrew is the way words and parts of words repeat, and they sort of string this necklace throughout the entire Bible. And unfortunately, that part of it is is very hard for an English reader to hear. And the reason it's hard is because The same word is not often translated the same way in different verses. So let's say if it appears in Job and it appears in Genesis, it won't be translated the same way. So it's almost impossible for an English reader to know it's the same word. And the second reason that it doesn't happen is because Hebrew is built on three letter roots. And so what that means is a noun and an adjective and a verb in Hebrew will have this beautiful sonic connection as well as a connection of meaning. And that's just not the way English works. So that doesn't come across, and it's really heartbreaking. So I think that, um, again, I think a reader who makes an effort to learn just a little bit of Hebrew will be able to, to get a sense of that and will be able to see um, how that works. And And I think that's why you see a lot of secular people who are, you know, say secular Israelis who are attached to the Tanakh. It's because of what it does to language. It's just magnificent.
0: Indeed. Indeed. And I think it's I think when, when you find an annotated edition um that does highlight those aspects, um I don't notice it as much in the Oxford uh the new Oxford annotated uh Bible, but definitely the new second edition of the Jewish study bible. Yeah. Um and also, in uh Robert Alter, you do get him calling attention specifically to those um those resonances, which uh I feel like you're just you're missing it if you don't see that so i I've come to depend on that um, in the commentary, um, otherwise you're just missing something fundamental.
1: I agree, and I think the Jewish study Bible is doing very important work, really helping um, for the reader who doesn't read. Uh, in the original Hebrew, uh, it's it's extremely valuable, really, really helpful, um, really helpful text. I would say, though, that I do think another thing that's happening is that, A, many of the individual Hebrew commentators are being translated into English, which is super, super helpful. I also think that something that sounds small but is really important happened around 2006, and that's that the Hebrew commentators, uh, the vowels were added for the first time. So, what this means is that a reader with, I would say, beginning to intermediate level Hebrew, as opposed to super advanced, um, can now wade through the commentators on his or her own, and that's really that's I think really helpful. Uh, so, that's a big, big change. Also controversial because many people think that you know you should break your teeth getting through the commentators. <laughs>
0: Well, let's lower the bar a little bit for those of us who are late in life to uh, biblical Hebrew. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago was your uh, early interest in Isaiah. And I found this fascinating, um, but you don't talk a whole lot about it in the book. So would you talk about it now? What, what drew you to that as a uh, part of your initial study? Um, and uh, and how did you get interested in the prophets in general?
1: Sure. Okay. So um, when this book, I basically spent 10 years of my life writing Isaiah poems and that's how this started. And I had to work hard to separate the projects, you know, to do it differently. Um, I was trying to teach my, it sounds like a crazy sentence to even say, but I, I was trying to teach myself to write poetry. That's what I was trying to do. And so, you know, um, writers like Derek Walcott would teach Auden, you know, to have these, these great um, poets from Western tradition. And, you know, I would go to synagogue every week. So I would read Isaiah. And one day I just was like, you know what? I think Isaiah is just as good a poet as, um, you know, Yeats and Auden. He's a great poet. So I started to read Isaiah as, you know, sort of as a poetry teacher. That's really what I was doing. And I don't even know how it, it sort of st- the other thing I noticed reading Isaiah is he did something that's very hard to do in poetry. He makes anger beautiful. That's not easy to write. It's not easy. And I wanted to learn how to do that. So I started writing these poems which were riffs off individual lines of Isaiah. And um, I never thought that I would spend years I mean it just it became this huge project of rereading the entire book of Isaiah and all of these Isaiah commentaries and responding, sort of talking back to Isaiah poems. And actually, really, I mean, if I'll just admit it, the reason I went to Iowa is because I wanted funding to work on those Isaiah poems. And so I ended up in the graduate, I was writing prose in Iowa, but I took the funding and I thought, well, if I spend some time in Iowa, I can finish these Isaiah poems. That's really what I was working on. And when I started, um, so I basically. I would read Isaiah pretty much every day. I I think there are probably eight years where all I read was the book of Isaiah. It was all I read all the time. I was really, really fascinated by it. And I think when I lived in Jerusalem, um, I felt that it was just super contemporary. You know, Isaiah, there's a lot of violence in Isaiah. There's a lot of death, a lot of anger, a lot of injustice. And that really was what I was seeing when I looked out the window in Jerusalem. And of course, Isaiah is a poet of Jerusalem. So... Um, I guess I just was living uh, with the book of Isaiah for a long time. And when I started um, this Bible class in it, with Marilyn Robinson, honestly, I was only interested in Isaiah. And she would kind of laugh at me. She would say, Isaiah, 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 you know, like whatever. She would, she would you know, like we would study Genesis. And I would say, well, th- you know, that's what Isaiah refers to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because I was Isaiah obsessed. But um, in time, I realized that I, I couldn't just focus. And I, I basically realized that my interest in Isaiah was going to morph into an interest in translation in general translation of the entire bible so i hope that answers your question uh, but yeah.
0: definitely no it does but it's not it's not typical like most of the focus of Ju- the jewish study of the bible is the torah but also extends to the uh the talmud i often hear more about the talmud than i will hear about you know first and second chronicles or um i mean maybe uh or even some of the minor prophets you know uh I, I don't honestly know how often, you know, Jonah is picked up in liturgy or other, you know, Jewish practice, but, um, but they seem to get a lot less interest. You know, it seems to me that the Psalms and obviously the Torah get the, the dominant interest and in the prophets less.
1: What you're responding to, interestingly enough, is that most scholars are men, okay? And in the religious Jewish world, at least the one I grew up in, Talmud was not taught to women. Okay, so that's for, for starters. I, I think that the situation has, is changing, and I think that more and more uh, girls growing up in religious homes are going to be taught Talmud, but not in the town I grew up in, absolutely not. You know, no Talmud for women whatsoever. So I think part of that is you're hearing my own background. You know, I, I first encountered Talmud in high school, which is actually pretty late. My, my brothers encountered it in the fifth grade, as, as an example. Um, I think that you know the Book of Jonah. It, it, I think there are a lot of artists who are inspired by the Book of Jonah. Um, I think that some of those books are read on books that are read on the high holidays. Uh, have a lot of resonance, so that happens. Um, but I do think that you you may be right that you know most people who get interested in Jewish scholarship um, are also interested in Jewish law and in that's that's the Talmud, you know and I have to say, it's not my primary interest. I guess I'm more interested in the poetry and the language. So, and I think that I very much saw and see the Bible, you know, it's some, as, as a piece of writing, you know, it's a, that's how I I see it. It's a, it's a more, I know that it's a book that's, uh, you know, documents really important in faith communities and it's scholarly, all of these things. But to me, I've always been moved, most of all, by the music of it and by the language of it. Yeah.
0: Something I'm, I'm very curious about is this notion of canon. Um, in my experience, I find that the, that the canon is generally made up of those works of literature that we keep returning to over and over as wellsprings of emotional, moral, spiritual, and perhaps even practical realities. How does how does your approach to the Bible comport with this wider sense of the great canon of literature? You know, is, is the Bible, what one might call the first Norton anthology of ancient Near Eastern literature, the pinnacle? How do you think through that?
1: That's such an interesting question. Uh, I think the Bible is a foundational text for most of Western literature. You know, I think as a writer, it's almost, if you don't know the Bible, you're kind of lost, you know, you can't get, you you can't get everything from Milton to a gnon in Hebrew. You're just, you don't really know what's going on. Um, Is the Bible part of the canon? Absolutely. But I I would, I guess, I guess I have a sort of fraught relationship to that question because I think, think that, I think that if you're a Jewish reader of Hebrew text, you have a very different understanding of the canon than if you're an English reader. And I first felt that in poetry graduate school, we had to create an anthology of the works that were most important to us. And you know what? No one in the room recognized any of the works on my list. And I always remember that. Yeah, because I grew up in Yeshiva, you know, and I was uh, the poets I was reading who I loved were, were Hebrew poets, and they, they didn't know who they were. And these were giants. Oh, who were they? Rachel, great poet, Chernichovsky, Bialik, the fathers. Bialik and Chonikovsky are the fathers of modern Hebrew poetry, uh, but nobody in uh, this very prestigious graduate program in poetry had ever heard of them. And uh, I remember my my friend, the poet, who's a King James buff. He had a couple of psalms from the King James on his anthology, so okay, I had, had that. but he wouldn't have recognized it in Hebrew. So I realized that I realized that I had a different canon in my head. yeah that, that was the first time I really realized. yeah.
0: Interesting. So how do you explain to someone who may not be religious or even familiar with the Bible how the Bible derives its power? Um, I'm mindful that people often reject the Bible because they have preconceived notions of what it says, that it's a rule book or that it's just full of pious people, which is a mischaracterization to say the least. But how would you think about that?
1: I guess I'm going to give a writer's answer. Okay. Okay. I think the Bible is the most human text we have. I think that it gives us really intimate and honest portrayals of what people are really like. I think it shows us not brothers who are piously devoted to each other, but brothers who kill each other. Okay, I think we see uh, we see siblings who in, who send another. The story of Joseph, they send us, they send someone to slavery. Someone else is murdered. You see, um, take someone like Jacob. You see um, stories about the more loved wife, the less loved wife. And you realize that in the Bible, nobody gets everything they want. And that's such a human story. You know, you may get love, but you don't get long life. You know, you may get um, a, a child, but that child may die young. You know, you may get a sibling, but the sibling will kill you. It's just, I think, the most absolutely honest human work that we have. So that would be my pitch. I don't think that it's about. I don't really think that the Bible is so much about religion, but it's about humanity, and I think that's why it's still so read. It's the only that is widely read. That, that that's widely read, and I think that's why. Because it's so honest about what it means to be a human being,
0: sadly, I think we're we're losing that sense um and, and that it as it departs from the canon over feelings that it that it is only a religious text that we're also losing this sense of um the humanity of it um,
1: I agree, I also think this might sound like a strange thing to say, but I, I think the Bible is an opportunity to bridge secular people and religious people. I think that when you think about it, many secular people and many deeply religious people live very different lives. They do different things with their weekends. they dress in different ways. They may eat in different ways. they They give money in different ways. But I think one of the few things that really connects us, I mean, honestly, is I think that a large percentage of secular people and a large percentage of religious people have had some encounter with the Bible. I actually think that's an opportunity. You know, I think that it's something that we should look at as a connector and not a divider. And I, I think the way to do it really is to talk about the humanity, the ancient humanity of the text, and not look at it as a religious, you know, as, a, as only uh, a religious.
0: Yes. That's an excellent point to end on. I've taken up a lot of your time, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm sure our listeners have, too. On the New Books Network, our traditional final question is, what are you working on now?
1: Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much. It's been awesome to talk with you. Uh, the next, what I'm working on now grew out of the grammar of God, and uh, I asked myself, What kind of a freak spends years writing about the Bible? Who does that? You know, so I started to investigate the personal lives of biblical commentators. And the next book is about a really fascinating 12th century uh, biblical commentator who spent nearly his entire life on the road. So uh, set in the 12th century, uh, life of a biblical commentator. I know it'll it'll be exciting.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll have to have you back on the program when that's published. (laughs) <laughs> That's excellent. Well, uh, Avia, thank you for your time today and for your beautifully written book.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate these fabulous questions.
0: All right. Take care. You too. That concludes my conversation with Avia Kushner about her new book, The Grammar of God, A Journey into the Words and Worlds of the Bible, published by Spiegel and Grau. Please join me again to hear about other new books in Biblical Studies. To learn about new programs as they are posted, you can follow the channel on Twitter at new books Bible.